0: reading isaiah chapters 34 and 35 this morning we're starting at verse 1 come near you nations and listen pay attention you peoples let the earth hear and all that is in it the world and all that comes out of it the lord is angry with all nations his wrath is on all their armies he will totally destroy them he will give them over to slaughter their slain will be thrown out their dead bodies will stink the mountains will be soaked with their blood All the stars in the sky will be dissolved And the heavens rolled up like a scroll All the starry hosts will fall Like withered leaves from the vine Like shriveled figs from the fig tree My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens See, it descends in judgment on Edom The people I have totally destroyed The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood It is covered with fat The blood of lambs and goats Fat from the kidneys of rams For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them, the bull calves and the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood, and the dust will be soaked with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution, to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day, its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom, the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There also the falcons will gather, each with its mate. Look in the scroll of the Lord and read. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate, for it is his mouth that has given the order, and his spirit will gather them together. He allots their portions, his hand distributes them by measure. They will possess it forever and dwell there from generation to generation. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Amen, this is God's word.
1: What a series of images we've got to think about this morning. Um, Let's pray. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you so much for this chance we have this morning to lift our eyes up from the here and now, from the immediate, um, to gaze into the future, to gaze into eternity. Uh, Thank you for speaking to us of of what's coming. And Lord, as we look at this series of profound, um, moving images, I pray that that, that by seeing the consequences of trusting you or this world stretched into eternity, would you teach us by looking at the future to trust you in the now, We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen. Um, Well, in uh, the year 1320, an Italian uh, man called Dante released um, uh, the Divine Comedy, the book, not the band. Um, It's widely considered to be one of the greatest works of literature um, uh, ever written. In it, the the author describes himself going on a journey uh, to heaven and to hell um, and then coming back. Um, and uh, he makes um, some, some significant theological errors, um, uh, but it also contains some of the most vivid descriptions ever, ever written. Uh, uh, descriptions that have really captured the imagination of people all over the world for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But I think that the real power of the book comes from its basic idea. What if you and I could see heaven and hell for a day and then come back. What difference would that make to life now? We are, aren't we? So uh, wrapped up in what's immediately in front of us, especially living in London. But what if we could see the future where, where everything around us is headed ultimately, eternally? How would that affect life now? How would that affect what I care about now? Um, what matters to me now? How would it affect, I suppose with Isaiah in mind, how would it affect what I trust in now? If I could see where everything is going ultimately, how would that affect what I lean on in this life? Well, Isaiah um, chapter 34 and 35, Isaiah's basically doing the same thing um, as that. In, In these chapters, Isaiah's looking down the corridor of future history to the moment when time merges with eternity. And what he sees there is two, everything everything headed towards one of two destinations. Judgment or new creation. Judgment pictured um, amongst other things as a desert, a desolate desert. New creation pictured as a blossoming garden. And, and he's, what he's saying to the people of his day and to us is, is look up look at where things are headed. Don't just think about the next five years, 10 years, 50 years. Look up at where everything is leading. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know the big question in Isaiah is what... Um, what are we going to trust in? You may know, um, uh, I'm not going to put the map up. We've had enough of the map, I think. Um, but uh, uh, the, uh, Israel's under pressure from um, uh, the, the, the army of Assyria, immense pressure um, from this invading army. And the question is, what will they trust for salvation? Will they trust in God or will they trust in um, Egypt or the nations around them, which stands for um, human power, might, wisdom in, this, in the here and now? What are they going to trust And their tendency, like ours, is just to look at the here and now, just to look at the next 5, 10, 50 years. But what Isaiah is saying to them um, and to us is, stop. When you're thinking about what to trust in, you've got to look up. You've got to look down the road. Where does this lead ultimately? Where is this headed? Look at where it leads. So my prayer, as I've already prayed, um, is that by looking at the consequences of trusting God or this world stretched into eternity, we trust God in the here and now. So that's where we're going. Um, Chapter 34, the world is facing the horrors of God's judgment. Chapter 35, the redeemed are facing the joy of a new creation. Just two, two quick things before we jump in. Um, first is just, who, who is chapter 34 talking about? I've said on, that, on, on the outline, the world. Who's he talking about? Well, notice verse 1, he's addressing all the nations. Um, and you might have spotted in verse 5, he zooms in to talk about Edom as a kind of symbolic representative of, of the rest. Now, what, what, what's it, who's he talking about here? Um, well, Edom uh, is the nation descended from Esau. You may remember if you were here last year when we looked at the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was completely godless. Right? Through the whole story, he never even speaks about God. He's obsessed with the here and the now, the red stuff, life in this world, um, living in defiance of God, ignoring him. And his descendants, the Edomites, are always oppressing, always hostile to God, his word, his ways, his people. So, so who, who is this talking about? Who's the world, the nations, Edom? Who's that talking about? Well, it's talk, it stands for arrogant, self-important humanity trying to live life apart from God. Isaiah is say, saying that is facing God's judgment. So that's what it's talking about. Second thing before we dive in, just to point out, look, he's using poetic imagery here, um, evocative imagery that's designed to create an impression. There are seven um, images we're going to look at on the handout. Um, the handout's almost as long as the sermon. Um, But but they're designed to create an impression. And in chapter 34, the imagery is meant to be terrifying. It's not literal, but it is trying to speak to us as something that we should be terrified of. Um, Sometimes normal language won't get through. Um, Imagine one of my my children is wrapped up in their own little world in the here and now, and they're, 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 they're wandering towards the road and there's a lorry coming. What do I say? I don't say, oh, come back, darling. I say no, there's a car coming. And wait, snap them out of it to see the seriousness of the situation. So these these images are doing the same thing. I was always trying to shake us and say, don't you see how serious this is? So if it feels uncomfortable, it's meant to. Um, we should lean into that, not dismiss it, okay? Right, so that's enough, enough waggling on the tea. Um, let's, let's dive into some of these, these images that Isaiah gives us here um, uh, of, of, of the, the judgment that the world is facing. Picture one in verses two and three is of a blood-soaked mountain. Look at verse two with me. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He'll totally destroy them. He will give them over to Slaughter, their slain will be thrown out, their bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. Imagine with me, you're standing in front of a mountain that's towering up to the sky and it's crimson from top to bottom with blood. And as you look at it, the stench of dead bodies fills your nose. And as if that's not scary enough, it starts to go dark all around you as the stars rot out of the sky. That is a terrifying picture. What's it trying to communicate? Well, it's it's an image, if you notice at the beginning of verse 2, of God's anger... Being expressed against the, the the evil of humanity. Now God's anger isn't like human anger. It's not a temper tantrum. It's his it's his completely right, settled, patient hostility to everything that is wrong. But one day that anger, which is moments we saw it, it's building up, one day that anger is going to be acted um, on on the world to destroy evil, to reassert God's rule. And that day is going to be terrifying. A blood-soaked mountain. That's the first image. The next image in verse 5 to 7 is a slaughtered animal. Have a look uh, down with me. Cast your eyes over verse 5 and 6. Notice that there's a, a, a sword descending from the sky, verse six, it's a sword that's bathed in blood. Why? Because there's, um, it's covered in the blood of an a, a animal sacrifice, a slaughtered animal. Um, Bosra, by the way, verse six, is the capital of Edom. Now why this grim image of a slaughtered animal, a bloody sacrifice? Well, it's an image of God punishing sin. That's what it's a picture of. Um, right from the back from the beginning of the Bible, God is crystal clear, from page two, God is crystal clear that rejecting him, rebelling against him, earns death. We don't think it's that big a deal, but he says the whole way through it really, really is. It earns death. Death. Now in the Old Testament, he introduces a system whereby there can be a substitute. That punishment can go symbolically onto an animal. It's a picture of when the Lord Jesus, God God himself, God the Son, would come and offer to take that punishment for sin on on himself. But if we reject that, if we ignore that, the punishment's still going to happen just face the consequences myself. Let me be as clear as I can. Either our sin will be punished on Jesus or it'll be punished on us on that day of judgment. Either he's my sacrifice or I become the sacrifice. A slaughtered animal Next image we get in verse 8 onwards is uh, a day of vengeance. Have a look down at verse 8 with me. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cords. Edom's streams, try and, just, try and picture this. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulphur. Her land will become a blazing pitch. It will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. A day of vengeance. Now, that word vengeance there, um, it's not like um, revenge. What it means is the, the uh, it's not like personal revenge. It means the righting of a wrong by a legitimate authority. And what, what's the wrong here? Well, it's Edom. Edom that's opposed, that's oppressed God's people through the generations, defying God, mocking God's word, mocking God's ways. Edom, Isaiah pictures that that, that the whole social structure reduced, burnt to a volcanic wasteland. But I think the big the big point of this image is, is 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 in verse eight. Notice that the Lord has a day. There is a day, a day in God's calendar when this will happen. It's coming. It's set. And each day that goes by now, we are a day closer to it. There is a day of vengeance coming. I wonder if we're ready for that. And then we get this final, the final image uh, in verse 11 onwards, which is of a, a proud city crumbling into a desolate Desert, have a look down at verse 11 with me. Uh, the desert owl and screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom, the measuring line of chaos, the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles, her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. What if you can picture that in your mind's eye, the world of human pride crumbling into desolation. The uh, can you see the, the the cities, the strong, proud-looking cities, gradually overtaken and ripped down by thorns, and the the, the palaces where the powerful pranced, the princes pranced, empty. Filled with rats, unclean animals. Now, it's interesting, you might notice verse 11, um, it says that God stretches out the measuring line of chaos and desolation. Those words, chaos, desolation, um, they're translated, what um, they mean, they mean to, to make empty or to make void. Okay, they're actually um, words from right back at the beginning of the Bible, from before creation, Genesis chapter 1, where everything was empty and void. So the idea here is that, that God is decreating. It's like God puts on his hard hat and works as a, a deconstruction worker, reverting the world that rejects him to what it was before, what it is without him. It's quite logical if you think about it. If God is, is the creator who brings order from chaos and arrogant humanity rejects that, well, what are we left with? Uncreation. If, if God comes and offers to die to save us, the source of light and life, but we look at that and through our lives say, no, don't want it, don't care, don't want you, Lord. He will give us what we ask for. Be cut off from him Forever. Decreation, chaos. So the blood-soaked mountain, the sacrifice, the day of vengeance, the desolate desert. As I was trying to say, look, arrogant humanity, it might look very, very strong. might look very impressive in the here and now. But look at where it leads. Don't just look at the next 5, 10, 50 years Look at where it leads. It's facing God's judgment. So why would I trust in it now? I think we need to hear this today as well because we're so taken up with the here and now, the next 5, 10, 50 years. We need to look up and remember where things are headed. And You may remember a couple of weeks ago, Matt mentioned this article. Um, and in this article, it says, look, secular values are taking over society at the moment. Um, and, and if the church wants to survive, we're, we're stuffed, basically. If the church wants to survive, then we have to change our position on a number of key issues and just line up with secular culture. If not, we're finished. How do we survive? What's our hope? What's our salvation? That we make alliances with the kind of secular culture around us now. No matter the fact that those, those, the values that it's talking about mock God and his word and his ways. That might make sense in the next five, 10 years. I don't know about you, but I can find secular values really quite intimidating. Posters everywhere we go, it's quite intimidating. But look at where it leads. Don't just look at the next five, 10, 50 years. Humanity built up in opposition to God. It is facing his judgment. Why would I trust in that? Why would I make an alliance and put my hope with that if this is where it's going? Look at where it leads, Isaiah is saying. I don't know about you, I found that's put some steel in my spine. <laughs> I suppose we, need, we do need to hear this as well on a, on a personal level. There may well be someone here today who's thinking about turning away from God. Let's be honest. Life without God can at times just look more appealing. The lights at times just look brighter, don't they? And There may well be someone here today for whom life without God looks more appealing and you're tempted to turn from him because of something in the here and now. If that's you, can I just ask, don't just look at the next 5, 10, 50 years. You've got to look further than that. Look at where it leads eternally. The world is facing the horrors of God's judgment. We turn now to, to chapter 35, shift our gaze from the horror of judgment to, uh, to the happy bit, to the joy of the new creation. You'll be glad to hear three pictures for us here in chapter 35. First picture of the new creation is a wilderness bursting into bloom. Try and, try and see this as we read these words. Look at verse 1 chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Image there of a a wilderness bursting into bloom. You know, like a time-lapse where you see a flower spring up. It's like that. But do you you notice the contrast there? We just saw a proud city crumbling into a desolate desert. Here, we see a desert, a, a wilderness, bursting into bloom, bursting into a luscious garden. And you see the difference there. Cut off from God, the source of life, things wither but with God the source of life things blossom and burst with abundant life in the new creation have a look have a look have a look at verse the, the second half of verse 2 as well the glory of Lebanon will be given to it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon what's that talking about it's not talking about the splendor of Sharon Walsh sitting there at the back, splendid as she is, um, is talking, uh, uh, Carmel, Sharon, Lebanon, they were the most beautiful places in the Israelite mind. We might say the glory of the Maldives will be given to it. The glory of the Seychelles will be given to it. It's the best, the most beautiful of this world springing to life. But it's actually more than that as well. If you look at the repeated words in the second half of verse two, the glory and splendour of these worldly places will be given. Second half they will see the same words, glory and splendor of our gods. See, as they see the glory and splendor of, of God, I think his glory and splendor is, is given to them. They start to radiate it. In other words, this is the best of this world now, beautified with God's own glory and splendor. I just kind of ask, does that sound good to you? <laughs> A brand new physical world with all the beauty of this world perfected and beautified and radiating even more God's glory. Does that sound good to you? Sometimes when we're tempted to turn from God in this life, it's because we don't want to miss out on real stuff in the here and now for some vague spiritual hope. There's things here and now that I can taste and touch and enjoy. And if it's just some vague spiritual hope for the future, well, I don't want to miss out on that. um, this for that. But you see here, this isn't just a vague spiritual heaven. This is a brand new physical new creation. We're not missing out on that by trusting in God now just comes at a later point. A brand new physical creation bursting with life. The wilderness bursting into bloom. We'll come back to verse three and four. Um, Next next picture is um, in uh, verse five to seven of the lame leaping like a deer. Look at verse five with me. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a bubbling pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. This is a picture of renewal. Human bodies healed from all of their ills. Released from suffering to dance and shout. The world itself being refreshed and rejuvenated. The thirsty ground becoming a bubbling spring. This is talking about renewal. Renewal in everything. And the things that make this life hard. I wonder what those things are for you right now. The things that make this life hard. From all those things, there will be renewal. Healing. Refreshment. All day. Every day forever. That sound good. Final picture, final picture we get, verse 10 is of a, a singing city. We don't have time to look at all the images, I'm afraid, but we'll zoom to verse 10. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy. Will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah, he pictures here the redeemed. That's those of us that are trusting Jesus, right? That's us. He pictures us walking into the city where God dwells. He pictures he imagines the sound of our singing. As joy overtakes us like a wave. When do people burst into song in this world? Well, it's when they're really happy. You know, when the team scores, when they feel this overwhelming urge to sing. That's a tiny shadow of what's going on here. And it is because joy overtakes them. You might notice back in verse 2, it starts, it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And then verse 10, they enter Zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads. And it's the big picture of the new creation for you and me. Joy. Everlasting joy. Joy that can't spoil or fade or get boring. Joy. That is what what we're trusting the Lord leads us. Now we do just need to, before we think about what this means for us, do you just need to notice that this all centres on God's coming. So verse 3 and 4, just very briefly, um, notice that this, this, it, is, it is God that achieves this. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, divine retribution, he will come to save you. It is God that achieves this. Now look, we know that began with Christ 2,000 years ago when he came, and he did some of the things in verse five. We've got a little foretaste of that. He, he, he died to face the judgment we deserve. And the Bible says his resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. It's the guarantee that he'll return and finish the job. So there we have it. The, uh, uh, the blossoming wilderness, uh, the, the lame leaping like a deer and the singing city. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, for a moment, I just want to speak to, if there's anybody here this morning and you're just investigating the Christian faith, you're just looking into this, I just want to try and make it as clear as I can. Um, God is calling us to look beyond the pressures of the here and now, to look at your eternal destiny. Every single one of us is going to walk out of the doors, ultimately on our way to one of two places. Judgment. New creation. Trust in Jesus. Sorry. uh, Trust in Jesus. (laughs) Don't trust in Jesus. Choice is yours. But God will give you what you want. For those of us here, I suppose, that would call ourselves Christians, again, God's doing the same thing. He's inviting us to look up Look at where this leads. Look at what he's got in store for you. Look at where trusting him leads. And what will that do? Well, I think verse three, that will strengthen our feeble hands. That will steady the knees that give way. It does strengthen us to look up and remember what God will do. Remember where it leads. When I'm tempted to walk away from him, when I'm facing the pressure to conform, to the things of this world, to compromise my faith. Look at where it leads, not just the next 5, 10, 50 years. Look at where it leads eternally. And let that future strengthen you to keep trusting in him now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you did face judgment so that none of us ever have to. Thank you so much for what you did on the cross. And thank you that your resurrection is beginning to usher in this new creation. I pray that um, as we head out of here into the week, I pray that these, uh, these images will stay in our minds. I pray that these futures will change the way we see the present. We change what we trust in now. Teach us to trust in you because of what we've got coming.